Well, you can turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. That's where we'll spend our time this morning is in Genesis chapter 1. And there's a good reason for us to go to Genesis chapter 1. You see on your bulletin, the question is, why come? Why come? Why did Christ come to earth? God, why come down to earth? And that's what we want to answer this morning as we're heading into a holiday season. And maybe as, we, uh, as a way of entry into this conversation, have you seen the pictures that are hitting the internet from the Mars rover most recently? On November 26th, the InSight rover landed on Mars, which is 300 million miles away. It joined a team of four other vehicles that are out there, three satellites and the Curiosity rover. We've been out in Mars for quite a while now, and it's not cheap to get there. When you're traveling 300 million miles, you've got to get there. At, it takes about six months to do that at 12,000 miles an hour. NASA's budget for this InSight rover it uh, was originally around $600 million, and it was bumped up by Project N to $830 million to get this rover there. So it's a lightweight rover. It's not even a billion-dollar rover. So it's really just kind of the, the starting point. The next rover, though, it'll be a, it'll be a good-sized one. 2020, just a couple of years from now, we can expect to spend $2.5 billion to get that next rover out there to Mars, and it'll make that same journey of 300 million miles. Doing some great research out there for us. With the massive expenditures of money and the great distance traveled and perfectly viable life here on planet Earth, it begs the question, why? Why go? Why send yourself and your gear and equipment 300 million miles away? And you get questions. You get answers to these questions, right? You'll get answers. And the, the first that you get as you look online and try to understand what, the, what is the purpose of these um, these missions, these missions to outer space. Well, the first that comes up is the search for life on other planets. That's number one, the search for life on other planets. Then understanding the planet's surface and formation. That's what they're looking to do with the Mars rover, understand the surface and how that planet was formed. Third reason would be to prepare for future exploration because once you've hit Mars 300 million miles away, then you make that a base and a hub from which to launch another 300 million miles. I found a source that made this statement. They said, understanding whether life existed elsewhere in the universe beyond Earth is a fundamental question for humanity. Fundamental means basic to all. Well, that is uh, something that I very sternly disagree with. Even so, searching for alien life is one of the primary reasons, but it's not the only reason. When you think back to space exploration and time in space, go back to the moon landing of 1969, and what was the purpose for that? What gave rise to the moon landing in 1969? Well, from one source, it was the driving reason, the Cold War was, that is, between the United States and the Soviet Union. It was a race for space dominance, supremacy, between these two countries, not engaged in an armed conflict, but certainly at this Cold War. So when we think about space travel and space exploration, the moon was about humans fighting one another, and Mars is about aliens. These are our reasons. The reasons are screaming to us to make an observation then about humanity. What is in the heart of man that would cause these two things to be the reason that would launch us 300 million miles in space. Well, the first would be the character of man. And the character of man we can see is prideful. That's the character of man. Second, you see the condition of man, and that the condition of man's heart is empty. Prideful and empty. Fighting with men made in the image of God is prideful, and it's rebellion to God. 
And that's what sent us to the moon. Searching for aliens, other life in the universe, in the cosmos. Well, this is pride as well and proof of how empty the heart of man is. And you say, well, how is that the case? How is searching for life outside of our planet prideful? Well, think about it for a second. On what planet was Jesus born? And on what planet did Jesus die? And to what planet does Jesus say that he will return and judge the whole earth? Earth is the only planet of interest to God because it is the planet covered with people who are made in the image and likeness of God. So where you go is important. Where you go is important. It speaks to your character and the condition of your heart. Just like you being here at church today, it speaks to the character of your heart, even being on time, being with God's people intentionally. It speaks to your desires. It speaks to your affections. And this is a great point on which to turn our focus this morning and focus on God and consider this holiday season upon us. The celebration of Jesus Christ coming to earth as a baby boy. When you look at the manger scene, whether it's on your living room table or your neighbor's lawn and lights, when you see the baby in the manger, do you consider the power of God? Does the manger scene make you ponder the question, why come? Why did you come? Why come to earth and wear flesh like us? Why come and be subjected to the cruelty of this cursed planet and sinful humanity? This is a great question, and I hope it's a question that this season it'll be on your mind. It should be on your mind because it, it tells us the answers they tell us. And when you look at this question, they tell us the awesome character of God and the awful condition of humanity. Our country is a flagship for the awful condition of humanity. America is so empty and broken, and by its own secular definition, we would be called bipolar. We've launched a multi-trillion dollar exploration to Mars in search of life, and meanwhile, every year, we launch into a 30-day spending spasm, which helps us commercialize and celebrate the birth of one single life. That is, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. The only intellectual consistency in this, searching for life and celebrating the birth of the Savior, is that we do this rampant spending thing. That's the only thing intellectually consistent. So where you may always be frustrated with government confusion and holiday confusion, you don't have to be confused about why God came to earth. The Word of God makes it clear to us this morning. We ask the question, why come? And the answer is this. The character of God and the condition of humanity demand Jesus come. The character of God and the condition of humanity demand Jesus come. I want to show you this from Genesis 1. That's why we're there. And I'm guessing that you already have this answer on your mind. Jesus came to save. Jesus came to save. And in saying that, you're right. But this is a secondary answer. And I want to use the text of Genesis to show you the primary answer. The primary answer. The primary reason for Jesus to come to earth is the character of God. It's his nature that he must come. I want you to see this from the text of Genesis. We're asking the question this morning, why come? You're in Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to look back at creation. Over the course of the next two weeks, we'll look back at the creation. And my objective is to answer this question, why come? And I believe I will be able to clearly show you in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, four characteristics of God which demand His coming. 
we'll see four characteristics of God which demand His coming. At the same time, I'm not just going to show you God and His character, though that's all you need to see because He's the primary reason. I also want to show you the condition of the heart of man, and we'll see four conditions of the heart of man in addition to the character of God. But in Genesis 1, we're going to see the holiness of God, the holiness of God in creation. And in Genesis 2, we're going to see the righteousness in His commands that He made. Holiness and righteousness, these perfections of God, these two perfections of God, they demand that Jesus come to earth. And they also serve as the point of contrast between the creature and the creator, revealing our wretched condition. Yes, he came to save, and there's something more important than that, his glory and his holy name and his reputation and his righteousness and holiness. That's what he came for. He came for himself. And that is the pinnacle reason why Christ came. So look to the text with me. We'll start in Genesis 1. I want you to be thinking about the holiness of God seen in the fact that God created. We'll start in Genesis 1.1. I'm not going to be able to read the whole text, but I'll have you follow along with me. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening. And there was morning. One day. God's creative acts go on for six days. Each day introduced with this refrain, then God said, then God said, the gathering of the waters, the raising up of the dry ground, the moon and the sun, the plants and fish and birds, each of their appointed days came along in the succession of creation. Then a significant high point happens on day six after having created the land animals. And you'll read with me in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over the, all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. In verse 31, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their hosts. By the seventh day, God completed his works which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which he had created and made." This is the word of the Lord. We're looking at two characteristics today of God that demand his coming. We just read Genesis 1, and the first characteristic that we're going to see today is holiness. Holiness is jumping off of the page when you read Genesis chapter 1. Holiness is seen in creation. First, you need me to answer the question for you, well, what is holiness if I don't know what holiness is, I'm off to a bad start. So let's define holiness. Holiness means to be set apart, to be separated out. It's distinctness. 
It's the person who's walking down the street at times and their pant leg lifts up and their sock is yellow and green. They want to be distinct in their socks. God wants to be distinct in his creation. So you ask Oliver, where is holiness in the text? What is distinct about Genesis 1? What is holy other? The text gives us four demonstrations of holiness in creation. I want to run through those with you. There's four demonstrations of holiness in creation. The first is ex nihilo creation, ex nihilo creation. Genesis 1.1 says this, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Ex Ex nihilo creation is this, creation out of nothing. There was nothing, and then everything was created. The explanation of the whole world is distinct in these 10 words. This 10-word Bible explanation is the whole answer to Albert Einstein's theory of special relativity. The Jewish and German physicist and atheist who won the Nobel Prize in 1921 was trying to figure out how did all of this happen? And he theorized that the elementary particles that govern the structure of the space-time continuum must include time and energy and space and matter. Surely you've heard of his formula that was the, was the product of all of his labor. E equals MC squared. And all the kids in elementary school said, amen, that's the answer. But the answer is right here in the text. Here in Genesis, in 10 words, we have the divine answer to Albert Einstein's theory of special relativity. Consider what God had Moses record for us. In the beginning, what's that? Time. God created. What's that? Energy. The heavens. Space. And the earth. Matter. Interestingly, time, space, and matter must, have, or must happen in order. Otherwise, where would you put the matter? Or when would you put the matter? Not only must they come in order, but they must come simultaneously. Which is why evolutionists must talk about a big bang theory that kicked off all of the activity that we see on the earth and in the universe. And so they advocate to our children and our teaching in public schools today, 13.7 billion years ago, time, there was an explosion, energy, and and that created space and matter, which is to say that nothing exploded and made everything. This is the height of absurdity. This is ridiculous and the height of arrogance and pride and the rejection of God, which is exactly what we expect to find when we read Romans chapter 1, when God so clearly stated for us in the first verse of the Bible exactly how it is that he created the entire universe. And he told us in a very concise way, 10 words. God is distinct and his creation is distinct. He is set apart Even his method of creation is distinct. Let's look at that second. His method of creation, his spoken creation. We have ex nihilo, out of nothing creation. We also have here spoken creation. God needed only to speak to create. Genesis 1-3, then God said, let there be light. And there was light. This then becomes the refrain throughout Genesis chapter 1. Let there be light. Let there be earth. Let the waters bring forth The fish from 6 to 9 and verse 11 and 14 and 20 and 24, let there be. Then God said, only our God has the ability to create through his spoken word. 
This is a powerful demonstration then of his holiness. And further than making space and matter and earth and plants and birds, God made a holy, distinct creature on the earth. The third demonstration of God's holiness in creation is seen in Genesis 1.26 when God says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. I call this in our image creation. Ex nihilo, spoken, and then in our image creation. God's holiness is especially captured in us, in, in created beings made after his image and likeness, in humanity, male and female. Notice that God speaks in this verse to himself. You see that in the text, right? He says, let us make man in our image. The use of the plural here is no accident as God is bringing holiness through this passage. It speaks of the perfection of God that is his triune nature, father, son, and spirit, as we sang about earlier. Next, you see God is looking to make a a creature that conforms to his image and his likeness. And one significant mark of being in his image and likeness is the fact of dominion, that God gives Adam and Eve dominion over the world. He wants man to, this five-fold repetition, rule over, rule over. This verb is the Hebrew word radah, which means to rule over or to have dominion. You see, in this instance, God gave man a slice of his authority. God has all authority, and he cut off from man a slice of it and said, I want you to have authority just like me. Making man then becomes the high point of all creation. I think this really frustrated Satan, who was an angel of light who was made, and he sees man who's made a little lower than him, but made in the image and likeness of God and given authority over God's creation. God has a special purpose and use for man, establishing a relationship between the creature and the creator. A relationship is, that is even distinct and set apart from all the rest of creation. God does not interact with lions and tigers and bears like he does with you and I. This relationship is distinct with him. And in making the relationship distinct, God said that all of his creation is very good And he even set out a special time of fellowship with man. And we see this next in the fourth demonstration of God's holiness in creation. This time of fellowship, this time of reflection on what God's done, the seventh day sanctification. That's that fourth step, that fourth demonstration, seventh day sanctification. For six days, God spoke and he made and he created. And then on the seventh day, God operates just in the way that he wants us to operate, knowing that we're finite, knowing that we're not independent, but dependent on him. He wants us to have a day of special recognition of that dependence on him. And so he rests and he looks and he marvels at his creation, much like we're supposed to stop and look and rest and marvel at him. God rested from all of his work. And in doing so, he presented us with a model for our work schedule Six days we are to be working, and on the seventh day we're to rest. This time of rest is blessed by God, and the text says that he sanctified it. Uh, Here we have a a Hebrew verb. It's It's the verb that carries the word holiness in it. Holiness shows up three different ways in the Hebrew text. In the Old Testament, there's 640 uses of these three Hebrew words for holy. And do you realize that at this moment, this is the only time in the book of Genesis where the word holy 
shows up right there in the word you read on the page, sanctified. He set it apart. He made it distinct. Does that mean anything to us? Does that bear any significance? Well, certainly it does. The seventh day becomes a capstone day. It becomes the culmination of everything that God wanted and everything that he'd done. And he sets apart the seventh day to say, this is all of my creation. Behold it. Look at it. Marvel at it. In this one day, make it distinct and recognize me and all that I've done. This is what he wanted. He even spoke this to Moses on Mount Sinai. You're to keep the Sabbath day holy, he said. It's a remembrance of God's holiness and creation and a day of communion and fellowship with him. And so we've seen in Genesis chapter 1 that God is distinct, that his methods are distinct, that humanity that he made in his image is distinct from all the other creation. In this day of worship, he set it aside and he made it distinct as well. And so what marks Genesis 1? What do we establish in Genesis 1? We establish the very character of God and that he is holy, distinct, and set apart. There is nothing like God. He is our God, and He is holy, completely distinct and set apart from any one of us. But now let's bridge the gap over to our question for this morning, because we want to know why Jesus had to come to earth as a baby boy. And so how do you get from ex nihilo to swaddling cloths in a manger? And we're going to do this in two questions. The first is, well, who created? Who created? The text in Genesis says that God created. God spoke. God created. Exactly right. But what does the text of John 1.1 reveal to us? Let's do a little quick survey and see what John and Paul have to say about who was there in creation. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. John puts Jesus as the creator in the garden. Let's read what Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. Through him and for him, Jesus is the author of creation. When you read Genesis 1, don't forget, Jesus is the creator. All things have been created through him, and most distinctly, as we just read in Colossians, they have been made for him. And this for him takes us to the second question to help us bridge over to why from ex nihilo creation, we have to get to a swaddling cloth clad manger baby. The second question is about motive. Why make all creation for yourself? Why make all of creation for yourself? And the answer is, for His glory. He made it for His glory. He made it to be praised and to be worshipped for who He is, because it is His nature to receive worship. He is a creator and establisher of all life. It goes the same way that I would answer or ask this question of you, and I would expect you to answer. What is the purpose of your life? What is the purpose of your life? Well, it is to glorify God. God's holiness demands that he worship himself. Do you see? God's holiness demands worship of himself. That's how set apart he is. It is the refrain of Ephesians 1, 
to the praise of His glory, to the praise of His glory. And it is the content of Paul's doxology in Romans eleven thirty six when Paul says, For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. Jesus created for His glory. Yet the creation did not praise Him in obedience, did it? It didn't. Even the nation Israel we find to be the most profound example, as Brother Don read earlier, of the disobedience toward God that he experienced from his creation. And yet in responding to Israel's rebellion, we see the holiness of God. Can I take you there in the text today? Let's look at Ezekiel 36. I want to show you how God responded to Israel's rebellion and what that says about his holiness and how intent he is on defending his holiness. You know, often this passage, Ezekiel 36, we'll turn here to talk about salvation, and salvation it is, because it talks about a time when the Jews will be saved in all of eternity. The nation of Israel will return in salvation. We see that in the text, but that's not what I want to look at right here. We're going to answer the question, why come? And further, what does holiness have to do with Jesus coming to earth? And this text says something to us about this. In this text in Ezekiel 36, God is speaking to Ezekiel, telling him what to say to the nation of Israel. Just like Adam and Eve rebelled against God and received his wrath, so too Israel rebelled against God and has received his wrath. They're being punished actively by God. And yet here God is telling them of salvation. He's telling them of salvation while they are wicked. And pick up with me in Ezekiel 36, 22, and listen for God's reasoning on why he will act. Listen for the reason of why God will act. He says in verse 22, Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name. You have profaned among the nations you went. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations. You have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among them, among you in their sight. So how do we get from ex nihilo to the manger? Right here what the text says. We get from ex nihilo to the manger in the vindication of the holiness of God. Why come to earth? Because holiness demands that God come to earth and vindicate his holy name. God will not violate his character. Holiness demands that he come. And as a result, we have the incarnation. We have Jesus Christ laid in a manger because of holiness. God became a man because doing so conforms to his holiness. Do you know, NASA is not searching for God's holiness. They're not. Are you concerned, though, in your own life about the holiness of God? Do you search the scriptures and ask yourself the question, how can I be found holy and righteous before God? Because the scriptures give you the answer. And if you don't have that answer... It is to an awful destiny, an awful eternity, that you will spend the rest of your life in eternity, your eternal life. 
Because if you don't choose to worship him down here, he will not twist your arm behind your back and make you worship him in heaven eternally. You must concern yourself with the holiness of God in your own lives. God says to the Israelites in Leviticus 11.44, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. And you hear the same thing from Peter in chapter 1 of his epistle when he says, But like the Holy One who called you, be yourselves also holy in all of your behavior. Brothers and sisters, holiness is being distinct and set apart. And I would dare challenge you this morning, how distinct and set apart is your life from this world? Friendship with the world is hatred of God. Your life must be lived distinct from this world. The question would be, whose child are you? We'll move to the second characteristic of God and go back to Genesis and look at chapter 2. Do that with me now. Genesis chapter 2, we'll talk about the second characteristic of God that demands that he come to earth. The second characteristic of God that puts Jesus Christ as a baby in a manger. In Genesis chapter 2, you will see righteousness in God's commands. Righteousness in God's commands. So read with me along from Genesis chapter 2, and to look for righteousness, I'm just going to read from verses 7 to 9 and from verse 15 to 17. The whole chapter does speak to this, but time will permit, permit me from, will not permit me to go through the entire chapter with you, but we'll read these sections now. Genesis 2, 7 begins with this. Then the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and he became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Move to verses 15 to 17 with me. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. The text of chapter 2 shows us the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God is seen in His design and in His commands. I want to walk through these with you. But first, I'll answer the question, what is righteousness? Explain that. Establish righteousness for us so that we have an idea of where we're going with righteousness. Righteousness is the Hebrew word sadiq. And it, its meaning is that which is just or lawful or right. And in saying those definitions, you can see that it has to do with law and commands and rules. Psalm 145 verse 17 says, The Lord is righteous in all His ways. Psalm 119, if you've read that and spent time in this wealth of text, it says over and over again that God's righteousness is seen in His ordinances, His judgments, and His commandments. 
Psalm 119, 160 says, The sum of your words is truth, and every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. And then consider the comforting words of the 23rd Psalm, which says, He restores my soul. He guides me in the path, in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Yet is His righteousness in the word righteous? Is it in Genesis chapter 2? No, the word sadiq is not in Genesis chapter 2. But again, I ask you the question, is righteousness in Genesis 2? Well, it most certainly is. Righteousness has to do with commands and rules and justice and law. And this is certainly what we have in Genesis chapter 2. We have the commands of God to Adam and Eve. But his righteousness is also seen in his design, specifically the garden's two trees. And I want to look at those with you real quick here in the text before we jump to the commands. Because righteousness comes in the design and then the commands follow the design. So let's look at this together. God's righteousness is made clear in his design. And in Genesis 2.9, God created a tree of life. Creating a tree of life is righteous. This is not the 1970s righteous of bell bottoms and butterfly collars. This is God's righteousness. It is right and good and just of God to present to man a food source that gives to him eternal life. And eating from it would necessarily then demonstrate to God and to the man, the man's conformity to God's righteousness through his obedience. The tree of life is righteous. It's so righteous, it shows up in Psalm 1. It's so righteous, it shows up in Revelation 22.2. And it might be really profitable for you to understand that when we get to the eternal state and we're in heaven forever with God, there will be a tree of life. We will see this again. God loves the tree of life. He wasn't done with the tree, the tree of life only. He also had the tree in Genesis 2.9, of the knowledge of good and evil, which maybe is another way to say the tree of commands, the tree of obedience, the tree of his rules. Again, this is righteousness. You know, two big discussions come up when you're talking about religion with anybody, and this tree helps to understand both of them. The free will of man and the problem of evil right here in this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This tree speaks to both of these issues. God did not make evil. He made a tree. The tree confirms that we are not robots, which is the other side of that argument with free will. Well, if God owns everything and he's completely sovereign, then I'm just a robot doing his bidding for him. No, you're a free will being. You're not a robot. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil says that. We have free will. And with our free will, we choose evil. We choose evil. What are the chances that at this point in time, you've already bought a few Christmas presents for the kids or the grandkids? You probably have, right? And a good, good chance that that's already the case. And my question would be, have you read the product warning label on any of these things? Because you know that some of these products will kill people, right? I mean, you can get crayons for kids and they can stuff them in their ears and up their nose. And if you put five of them together and put them down their throat, they'll die. Watch out. There's horrible, terrible things. These manufacturers, don't they know? Why did they manufacture crayons when it could result in a child death? 
This is horrible. They should put bigger product warning labels on things. We really need to know that we shouldn't take crayons and shove them down our throat. It should be in bold print across every crayon. Don't put in your throat with four other crayons. <laughs> is that what's needed? You know what? I, I bet if, if, if you wanted to with any one of the products, just wait for it to fail once you give it to the child. And you can grab a lawyer and you can have a lawsuit that can make you loads of money and make yourself rich. Because we'll always try to justify our bad behavior and make someone else the victim, make someone else pay for it. Does that lend itself to righteousness? No. Do we blame the manufacturer? Is it their fault that your child shoved five crayons in his mouth? Was the aim of the manufacturer evil in creating the product that's used by many for good? No. No. In the case of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, this was a warning label. It indicated two features of creation. Number one, you're a free will being. Number two, you are not God. It, was an, it, it acts as a warning label. This title, it acts as a warning label. And it says that you are not autonomous or independent. You are dependent. You can't do all things, and you must obey the commands of God. And this second tree acts as the gavel in the judge's courtroom. You can sit anywhere you want except at the seat with the gavel. The gavel, then, is not a play toy. It keeps law and order, and the sight of it reminds all just who is in charge of the room, the judge. The gavel is not a sign of evil, but of justice and authority, a sign of righteousness. And so, too, is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God is not the maker of evil. He is the maker of free will beings, so perfectly made that they can and do choose evil, which is simply unrighteousness and rebellion to God and disobedience. And I want you to get this next point. Here is the power of God in slapping that warning label on there. Listen to the power of God. He so wisely knows how to get glory out of rebellion. You may have made lemonade out of lemons, but this is infinitely larger than your lemonade stand. This is your lemonade stand on an infinitely larger scale. What characteristic of God allows him to get glory out of obedience and disobedience? What characteristic? Righteousness. His righteousness. That he is always right and just and good in all of his ways. Well, how? How is this the case? Because righteousness makes rules. Righteousness makes rules. You know this to be the case because you live it every day. God says to you, obey the government that's appointed over you. And then government goes about doing what? Making rules. They paint stripes on the streets. They hang lights. They post signs. And what happens if you disobey the government? Accidents, punishment, fines. But if you obey, doesn't life go well with you? And with your relationship with God? You know, this is the beauty of righteousness. God establishes his rules and his consequences. Free will beings choose to obey or not obey. God achieves glory. Ideally, in your obedience. Equally, though, in his justice and wrath. Consider the lives of Joseph and Jesus 
How many violations of God's law are in each of their stories? Countless violations of God's law in both of their stories. And yet, what is the refrain at the end of each of those lives? All glory be to God. He has everything sovereignly in his control. He knows how to extract out of this creation of his glory for himself. Do you understand that evil is not the biggest issue in your life? It's not. Evil is not the biggest issue in your life. Righteousness is. Righteousness is the biggest thing that you have to contend with in your life. And you're falling short of it. God's righteousness makes demands of everybody's behavior. God's already judged you. If you don't believe God, he's already judged you and he already has a place for you. But if you're his and you want to walk with him, he's looking at your behavior. He's watching and he wants to see how you respond to him because he's so gracious and he's so merciful. Did you also realize, though, that God's righteousness demand, demands that it, it makes demands of God? God's righteousness makes demands of God. Well, how could that be the case? Well, because it demands that God speak his rules and consequences into existence so that his creation can hear from him and know him. And this is what we find in Genesis 2, right? Look there at the text in 2, 15 to 17. We see God's righteousness in his commands. Verse 15 says, Then the Lord God took, him, took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. God gives Adam then two jobs we see here in the text in verse 15. Cultivate and keep the garden. This is great. Thank you, God. You designed us with a purpose. We can be pleasing to you if we just do the things for which you've made us. Cultivate and keep the garden. Be fruitful. Multiply. Fill the earth, right? Thank you. We need to be busy with life. And then next, God gives us these commands. Next, in verse 16, he says, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. God gives two commandments here. Eat freely, and the other one, do not eat. This is God simply telling us. I always think so simply with this one. My mind just goes real simple with this one, and I just go, that was God's way of telling him, you're not God. You have to listen to me. You're not God. Just one command. Think of the expanse of the Garden of Eden. What size are we talking about? What beauty are we talking about? And there's one tree for which they can't eat? Wouldn't you look at all the good? Wouldn't you chase off after that? He looked in the wrong direction. And consequences came as a result because God did condition obedience or disobedience with an outcome. If you eat from it, you will die. God says, use your free will to honor me. Obedience leads to blessing, the fullness of joy, eternal satisfaction. Disobedience leads to cursing, to judgment, to punishment and wrath. But either way, God is only ever righteous, and he will extract from your life glory for himself. Which of you parents gives commands to your children which you don't expect them to obey? Which of you would do this? Do you just talk at your kids while they do whatever they want? Of course not. And what happens if you don't deliver on the consequences that you've set for your children? 
Well, then they just walk all over you. Your authority gets destroyed, and, and so too does your household joy and peace and kindness and love. Do you understand that? This, this works for us as much as it works for God. It's His rules, it's His way, it's His plan, and it works for us just the same. Our job, our opportunity with our children is to create rules and righteousness and love with limits and boundaries. And if you give love with limits and rules with righteousness, you get the opportunity to see a cause and effect relationship. And when that cause and effect relationship happened, because you're dealing with a free will being made in the image and likeness of God, then you have an obligation to deliver, to deliver, to deliver peace and grace or to deliver wrath and truth. And you must, if you said no to this, you must deliver the consequence on the other side. Because when you deliver the consequence, do you know what you get to talk about? When you deliver the grace or the truth, do you know what you get to talk about? You get to talk about the cross of Jesus Christ who died to pay for our sin. That's why you set rules in wisdom and love and limits so that you can get the opportunity at the end of dealing with this free will being to talk about Jesus Christ and him crucified and your need for a savior. Your parents don't operate any different than God does. And if you do, I know this about you already. Your house is turned upside down. Your children are a mess. Your relationship with your wife is strained. Your children are going to grow up to disappoint you. I know this about you already. I've seen it. I understand it well. You have every reason and even an obligation and a mandate from God to fix your home, to set rules and limits, to live under these things and to teach your children to respond to God, to his holiness, but as we're seeing in the text, to his righteousness. You must make this demand. God makes it of you. You must make it of them. Consider the many times in human history when God was required by his righteousness to demonstrate his wrath. What happened in the Garden of Eden? They were kicked out. What happened with the global flood? All of the earth except eight people were destroyed. What happened at the Tower of Babel? Their language was confused. God is not slack in delivering righteousness in the face of disobedience. This takes us back to our question for the morning. Why come? Lord Jesus, why come? Why come to earth? Well, as we've just explained all the way through uh, Genesis chapter 2, righteousness demands that he come. Righteousness demands that somebody fulfill all the law that had been established. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3 for me. Turn in your Bibles to Romans 3. You know, Adam and Eve were brought into life under the perfect conditions, and they were not able to obey God's law, and it was so simple. They faced temptation, it was so simple, and they failed. Christ came under the full weight of all of the law, and being fully God and fully man and powered by the Holy Spirit, he did fulfill the law. Christ himself affirmed this on the Sermon on the Mount when he said in Matthew 5, 17, do not think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. And he did just that. He accomplished the whole weight of the law. The whole weight of the law is accomplished in Christ. You don't want to live under the law. It points out your sin. You don't want to live under it. You want something else to live under. 
You want the law of Christ in your heart. Look at Romans chapter 3 with me. I want to read from 19 through 26, and I want you to feel the weight of this passage with me. I want you to realize and receive the righteousness of God that comes from this this passage. And I want you to understand that as Paul is launching into this passage, he's talking about the total depravity of man, right? In 3, 10 and 11 and 12, he says, there's none righteous. No, not one. There's none who seeks after God. And he moves on down in his argumentation. He says in 19, he says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Did you feel the weight of Paul's words there? God wants to be just and the justifier of the one who would simply believe in Jesus. The law demands that men obey and men do not. Righteousness then demands punishment. So the righteous one, the righteous son of God comes to earth and bears the sin of all the world who would simply have faith in him. So simple, so simple. No longer is it do this, do that, don't do this, do that. No longer with the rules. Now it is simply believe in Jesus, have faith in Jesus' words. God does not want a performance of righteousness. This is Roman Catholicism. He doesn't want you to act righteous in the sight of men. He wants you to be righteous in your heart. Faith in Jesus is righteousness because faith is something that emanates from your heart. It's part of your nature. Yet, This is a huge problem for man. How do men who are spiritually dead come up with faith? You realize that you'd have a better chance of winning the lottery at the same time of being struck by lightning? And the reason is this. It's because of the condition of humanity. And I've established for you that God's character demands that he come to earth. God's holiness and righteousness demand that Jesus be born in a manger. That's primary. That's number one. But we also need to see the second condition of humanity, or two, sorry, two conditions of humanity. I gave you two characteristics of God. Let me give you these two conditions of humanity, which are the, they create a secondary demand for Jesus to come. The first is this. The first condition of humanity is that in the Garden of Eden, you were not given in humanity in the creation of man. There was no indwelling Holy Spirit. 
That's condition number one. There was no indwelling Holy Spirit. Man was given life, just like all the other creatures were made. But man was not given the Holy Spirit. Genesis 2, if you're there in the text, Genesis 2 says this, Then God, then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Rauk and nefesh are the most common Hebrew words that translate soul or spirit, and neither of those two are used here. Interestingly, nefesh is the word used in Genesis 1, 20, 21, and 24 when we're describing the living creatures of the sea and of the land. But here in Genesis 2, 7, the word, is used, the word that is used is neshama, which simply means to breathe. Here is what you need to know. In both cases, the context is speaking to us, and the context is telling us that something that was not living is now alive. That's the, that's the point. Something that was not living is alive. And what this means is that at creation, mankind was not created with the indwelling Holy Spirit. Man was given life just like all of the other creatures. He was given life just like an animal has been given life, not the Holy Spirit. This will prove to be a big problem for man because shortly after, and we'll talk about this next week very much, the influence of Satan is going to come and test man's obedience, test man's obedience. But when did the indwelling spirit happen? And who promised it would happen? Well, certainly the Old Testament prophets were looking toward that. Even in our chapter where we read from Ezekiel 36, talks about the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ, in the upper room discourse on the night before he was betrayed, talks about the coming of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit comes in Acts chapter 2 at the day of Pentecost. And from that time, we understand that when the Holy Spirit comes, He regenerates and He seals us. And God makes us His adopted children through grace. And now we have the ability to do the good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, Ephesians chapter 2. Consider this as well. We're going to be Holy Spirit filled in heaven for all of eternity, right? Okay, so cast your mind back to the garden. If Holy Spirit filling didn't work with Adam in the garden, could we also fall out of the eternal kingdom in heaven? Not a possibility. We're going to go to heaven with the Holy Spirit because that's what Christ is doing on earth now, giving the Holy Spirit to those who are his children, the elect, the called, the predestined, which God is giving grace to daily. I'm not saying that this was a design flaw by any stretch of the imagination with God. He has the right to create a free will being made in his image and likeness. Rather, I'm saying to you, that this is a design perfection. God has always been uniquely aware of our condition. And the second condition that comes out of the text is the condition that we are not independent. Surely man was made to rule. We see this in Genesis 1.28, when God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves. There's eight times in that text when he says, rule over, rule over. He wants us to have dominion. Well, this authority that we have, it creates the appearance of independence. But God did not make man to be fully independent, did he? He made us to be dependent on him. Know this, where man is a totally free will being, man is not independent. He is not autonomous like God 
nor could he ever be. This would be blasphemy because God would have made a being equal to him. And God didn't make us equal to him. He made us creatures in his image and likeness. True independence belongs to God alone. Thus, humanity will only ever be dependent on God. And yet, amazingly, it only took one modest refutation of the word of God by a non-Holy Spirit-filled rejecter of God, the person of Satan, to cause Adam and Eve to think more highly of self and to think much less of the word of God. And where they were given the ability to rule over the fish and the birds and the land animals, they were not given independence from God. They chose instead to be dependent on the words of Satan and not on the words of God. And in so doing, they brought down the righteous justice and wrath of God and all of humanity for 6,000 years has lived under this curse. This is you and me. We want independence from God and we choose to be dependent on the words of Satan to achieve that independence from God, but you can't. You can't get away from him. You are not your own self. You were purchased at a price if you're his. You are completely dependent on him. So why come to earth? We've been asking this question all morning. Why come to earth? To honor himself. That's why he came to earth. To honor his holiness and his righteousness and to save us, which is the gospel. To save us. Jesus came to save. Consider Jesus' words in John 8, 36. Jesus says, so if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. This is not freedom from God, guys. This is not freedom from God. It is freedom with God. It is freedom with God. Jesus says to his disciples, I will ask the father and he will give you another helper that that he may be with you forever. This is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Why did Christ come? To give you freedom, to give you the indwelling Holy Spirit, to call you to a life of righteousness and to live in holiness of the truth. He came for those things. The satellite images will continue to show how incredibly Beautiful God-made outer space, all the way from 300 million miles away at Mars. But all of this is pointing to a righteous and holy God who demands our worship. The farther that we go into space, we will never, ever find the beauty of the truth that we've spoken about today from Genesis chapters 1 and 2. God made Jesus come to earth for his holiness and for his righteousness. And did you know this? God has him coming again for justice and wrath. We'll talk about that a bit next week, but let's close in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we are so mindful that the primary reason you came to this earth as a baby in a manger is to glorify and worship yourself. And we want to do that with the whole of our lives. We, we submit to you. We acknowledge you. We recognize that we are not our own. Well, we belong to you. We were made by you for you. And you get to have your way in us. Have your way in us this day, this week, and for the rest of our lives. Cause us to continually see we are not independent. We are completely dependent. And we must look to and gaze at your holiness and righteousness to truly understand this. So we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.